how did I first get into fashion? Um, I was very much into drawing and sculpture when I was uh, younger, or just making things. So I worked on building sites with my dad, and I was very into the materials that we were around and using. I was very interested in using them in different ways. And then my grandmother was a seamstress for the local hospital, and just like, you know, people would drop her things to repair. So I was always around those contrasting fabrications and also those different ways of like, that I think you see in that kind of culture in Ireland of like men's roles and women's roles that kind of like those stereotypes that are sort of played up to. And then I kind of pursued, after doing my leaving cert, I was going to do psychology, but it just seemed like a really boring choice. So I did a sort of FETAC course in Waterford. And that was the first time that I think someone was like, what are you doing? You should be doing this as like your job. And I was a bit like, oh, but what? <laughs> how is that a job? Because you know you don't really know. Yeah. So it was it, that was the first time someone and originally like that tutor called Anne O'Regan was the first kind of person that showed me contemporary art. So originally I was kind of on the sculpture room and she would like took us as a class just to the inn. And I remember seeing things in the inn and thinking like, "What's going on here? Like, what are people doing? This is amazing that you can do that as a job." <laughs> and then it just kind of it kind of escalated from there. I was doing lots of quite like making structures and using I don't know like the inside of furniture or um, performance pieces and I was in a school in Wales then from there because I thought it seemed like fun and they just didn't know what to do with me because I was quite wild and I would just try anything and I'd be doing like performances in the street in Wales and then a tutor there was like you should try St Martin's in London because they'll know what to do with you or they'll at least it'll be a challenge you know okay. like your, your energy will be well directed so that's kind of how I got into fashion but it's always been I guess through the studies it was always more about experimenting with what it could be and um like challenging what it was like I, th I think coming out of that and working at big companies in Paris and stuff you realize that there's such a system in place to it that takes so long to change anything which was is still quite shocking I guess you are changing things because in your way of work and we'll get into sustainability now and maybe you did touch on this just before, like maybe working with your dad in building sites, using those kind of materials there. What is that kind of what started your interest in sustainability? I think it's because also where, where we're from, I mean, anything that you had, you're very lucky to have, you know, so any, any time, any way that you can make something, it's kind of a massive privilege to be, to be able to make something and for, to, to be able to develop a language and, we're from like a, we're not farmers or anything, but we're from a very rural area and it's like wildlife protected. And there's, there's definitely a sense of the people who live there and in the surrounding areas look after the wildlife and you look after the, you know, the nature reserve and the birds and you have an awareness of, I guess, a sort of cyclical nature of like things that happen in winter, things that happen in summer. So I was always very tuned into that. And I think naturally like, my mom and her sisters, I think in a lot of Irish families, women are kind of at the core of it. So we were always very taught things very politically, you know, like, like that everything had politics involved in it. Whether like my family don't have the education to like articulate that necessarily very well. But I think what I was learning growing up around those kind of really strong women with really strong um, identities and personalities was that politics is equally about action, you know, and that's kind of where that started. That's why I think fashion maybe became a bit more interested because whether or not you're educated, you know, a lot of those women, you know, we were always talking about the repeal of the eighth, like what eventually became repeal of the eighth. We were always aware of gay rights. Um, we were always aware of like racism because my parents had moved to Luton where I was conceived actually and they'd experienced that kind of thing as well. So we'd always been very 
I guess, sensitive to those changes and try to have an understanding in a very real way about like the people we were around. So I think that that's where the interest definitely stemmed from. And also like always being um, encouraged to speak out if something was wrong. So I was always in trouble in school for that. You know, I was always getting in trouble. I was always getting suspended, but I always just like, I never really responded well to those sort of patriarchal structures that are in schools. They're equally damaging for young men I think so I think I was always quite like uh, reactive to that and I guess that's just the natural way for me to be given where I was brought up. You did um, something for Repeal the Eighth a few years ago in Selfridges yeah the one Selfridges and I remember hearing that for the first time on United Island which is Andrea Horan's podcast can you tell me about that if you don't mind you know kind of elaborating what you did there? Selfridges had invited me to do a window because I had been there for a few seasons and I've always had a bit of difficulty accepting the way that fashion works especially for young designers in the way that you're always told that you're so lucky to have the opportunity or you're so lucky to do things and I was trying to say the right things about repeal the eighth or just I think I was more really shocked that people in England didn't realize it was a problem still in Ireland and Mm -hmm. even more so in Northern Ireland you know so um Mm. There was loads of conversations with me and my friends about that. Um, and Una Mullally had the book out. And I was gave, giving copies of that around. I know they were actually, I'm sure they were selling the book in the WH Smith part of Selfridges. So I, I thought it was like fine. So, you know, we were having quite open conversations as you do. Mm. And then I just kind of arranged for some of my friends to maybe share their own experiences or read extracts from the book. And then we were literally, I think Selfridges just wanted me to show up with like, really lovely show pieces and put them in the window to get people in the shop maybe you know that kind of thing you can't really do when something like that's happening in your home country so I, I just showed up with like the facts and things that were really well researched and we had kind of pamphlets to hang out hand out to people there was like a real sort of unofficial promotion of the book um, and sharing stories stories that I kind of grew up with as well and it wasn't about like me saying I know someone like this it was actually people sharing their own experiences and being quite brave about that which is just shut it down as soon as we started it and then it was sort of I was writing the facts in the window in, in pen so that it was more like a performative thing and then they they kind of came down from upstairs in the head office and shut it down and they were like freaking out and then someone from somewhere else got a video of that happening and then that kind of spiraled so it kind of worked like, out well in in a weird way <laughs> yeah <laughs> oddly and then I I kind of had to be a bit smarter about what I was writing on the window so and I I did, I did message like Andre afterwards because we were allowed to write uh, women's rights or human rights is the only thing we were allowed to write on the window. Okay. Um, but then if you, there's like a crossword word in it so you can see that it says repeal across the window. Okay, Loads wow. Times, put that together. Wow. So that was hard for me to work out, especially because I was writing backwards, you know, so people see it. Now going back to your collections, your uh, collections are just absolutely beautiful and I was very lucky to get to see them in person at Fashion Week at the start of this year. And so tell me about how, like what kind of fabrics you use? You use like fish, like recycled fishnets and all that kind of stuff, right? Because when I started my label, I had come, I hadn't actually made a collection before. And I came back from working in at Louis Vuitton in Paris, where I worked for a year. And then I came back. So I was very aware of like making decisions about luxury goods and how they're sold and especially how they're promoted is so damaging to you know, people and also the environment. So I needed to make that change. And I didn't really want to be in the system of fashion in such a, such a way because the wholesale system is so damaging. Um, and I could see that, you know, it just seemed really obvious to me. And at the time, no one was like, that was 2014. So no one was interested in a sustainability conversation, not in mm. my year or 
it was something that I had to kind of do and research on the sideline. And I still think very much when I do collections, it's like a research project. You know, it's, it's, I don't produce hundreds of thousands of garments. That's never my ambition. It's more research based on like, can we do this with the fabric? Can we develop this fabric? And working with like eco is where they basically take the fishing, because whenever like, fishing is a huge problem, obviously, but the fishing nets, as soon as there's a hole in any part of it, it's literally just dropped in the ocean. So this wow. is a method where they just pick up these fishing nets and then you can re-spin and like melt and create this yarn. The yarn is still polyester, but that can then be broken down again and again to be reused. So you can actually change over time, like the color, or you can change the weave of it or how it's the stretch of it or something. So it's something that can be regenerated. And it, it kind of, I'm looking for things that are more about actively regenerating the harm that's been caused. I think that's mm-hmm. something that's really important. And also... A big problem with sustainability until recently, and I hate having to say it, is that everything just looks so shitty. You know, like mm. the, the nothing kind of less sustainable than thinking, than kind of making things that aren't desirable or that don't have as much thought in them in the cut. Or, you know, it's, it's all part of one problem of like making, you know, clothes really fast that look amazing in photos, but when you fit them on a, a body, you know, like it, it doesn't fit at all. Um, mm-hmm. Even, you know, when I was working with stores like to, launch collections and things like the sizing is bizarre like it literally means nothing you know like I'm just like Mm. sizing is such a bizarre code it it doesn't really mean anything because I have people sometimes come to the studio and they're like like you know every different shape and size and then they'll think that they're like a size extra large which is like a 18 or 20 or something and then they'll actually try on something that's like a 16 and it's just the different parts of people's bodies are different measurements and Mm. that really interests me that I guess people are trained to thinking that they're worth or their image is a number and that makes no sense at all and like the the sizing in high street clothes particularly can be totally like manic you know oh, it just doesn't make sense between one or the other it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's it, it's really annoying because i mean i talked about this with many people especially many women because you know we are the ones that um, would traditionally shop more on the high street and stuff you know it's all directed more to us and like i well when i was shopping all that stuff I knew every single, I knew what my size was in each store because I'd have to learn what my size was in each store because they were all different. And I'd know, okay, I can't shop in that one because I know that even their like extra large doesn't fit me. Um, And it's so, so rare to find when um, a a designer, or sorry, a brand is true to size. Like it's it's almost impossible. It's so strange. It's always a size up. Well, I just always thought the interesting thing about it was when you when you buy a bra, the measurements are there. So you understand it's not about like a worth thing that's attached to being a size. It's never discussed like to be a size the way that people were hyping up like being a size eight or a size zero or a size mm. ten or whatever the desirable thing is. Whereas with a bra, it's like literally the measurement of like inches and then a cup size. And that's yeah. just for one part of your body. So it's so bizarre to then go and be like, yet in a jacket it has to be a number. You know, when there's so many yeah. different parts and a lot of the like as like I'm trained in pattern cutting that's what I learned so I do all of the pattern cutting and and all of the fitting and just understanding like the length is also as important whereas a lot of high streets were kind of great like width wise but the length of how things fit like where the certain points to fit your waistline or your hip line completely changes the fit of things for example when we do made to order which is the majority of the business there's never a size label in it because it doesn't make sense you know like it just doesn't if you're buying something it's not more expensive or anything but um I just think it's a weird thing to have as a reminder on the inside of your clothes. 
So you know, how does it work? Do you, if someone is to go and buy, you know, something made to order and send you the measurement, the exact measurements of their, their body? Well, if it's like someone that's higher profile, it usually has to be done in a case where they measure as much as they can of themselves or their like assistant or their stylist would and then send that through. Equally, a lot of people just pop in the studio. It's hard as well to buy something, I guess, from a runway image because some people don't want to look like a runway. Mm. Sometimes when you try on a jacket, like for example, I bought a jacket in like Oxfam the other day and it's, it must be like eight sizes too big for me, but that's the fit that I want from it. You know, yeah. so it's, it's understanding like how you want to feel in it and what that fit is and really understanding the women that shop with me or not shop even like that kind of it's more like a patronage but it's a conversation and understanding that sometimes as a woman or as a man or as anybody you want to feel a certain way in clothes like they do have a function of making you feel specifically sexy or quite insular or maybe you want to be very sort of hidden you know and all of those things mm -hmm. have equal value so mm. it's just kind of understanding that and having that discussion quite openly I guess it's very old-fashioned way to make clothes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are some other uh, types of like fabrics aside from all fabrics and materials I guess that you use to make your clothes then? Well there's loads I mean we've worked with um, an amazing collective in India called Oshadi Collective where I've worked as a kind of design director consultant as well and they run a they have a regenerative farm there um, and they we've developed like amazing cottons with them they've helped us develop tensils which is like from bamboo fibers and natural plant-based dyeing i think when you run a company which i kind of hate that that's what i do somehow but part of it is running a company it's kind of a lot of it is making the decision to actively work with someone who's also doing really good work and like acknowledging that it's a collaboration or understanding that like the real work even nishant who runs oshadi you know he's always there's a real understanding that the the real work is in the people who've been developing the plant-based dyes for years and years and years you know it's, mm. it's a it's something that isn't really shared or talked about that much but like even farmers and stuff like putting the power in their hands because they're the ones with the actual the active knowledge um of understanding how something might be regenerated or you know there's different sort of steiner methods where you kind of work you like farm basically on the moon like basically like based on the moon you plant things and you you just use everything that's kind of organic and you don't waste things and there's a way of like with things like wool or cotton they can eventually be regenerated back into soil and that's like protecting mm -hmm. our soil that's something that i'm really interested in developing is like how we can regenerate soil and regenerate land because having been to india lots you know to work with oshadi just seeing the effects that sort of fast fashion has had on the actual land on like what is actually you know what can be have vegetation on it and things like that it's really shocking when you see it in person because like i think we're surrounded by a sort of world that's looking at like statistics and numbers and putting words into squares on your phone that are quite digestible but then when you actually see that physically in a landscape you're like that's really tragic and even in my lifetime like seeing that happen in Wexford and throughout Ireland with things like linen and lace and even wool even just like the whole industry is gone because it wasn't supported and that's one of the biggest things that we have to tackle with sustainability is education and that should start with people when they're very young yeah so it needs to be taught from when like a subject in school basically yeah yeah mm. completely it's like future proofing what we have already mm -hmm. and changing things changing behavior patterns um, and when you get to the core of it I'm always it's just it's so it's such a kind of ingrained system the way that fashion because fashion is such an elitist industry and i know that from being in and being like a an outsider coming into that industry like it's predominantly sort of 
or was until very recently, like sort of Notting Hill, very upper middle class girls who were running it. And then like the, the few gay men who got to be designers, you know, that was kind of what it was. Mm. And they also supported each other and there was a huge amount of nepotism in it. And that breeds its own kind of problem. So, you know, it's like, it's crazy that no one really cared for a while. And also the people who are still in power in fashion, really, like I'm talking in like the American Vogue's and the British Vogue's um, and the journalists um, who review our shows and review the bigger designer shows, they were the problem. You know, they started it. And we have to kind of acknowledge that as well, that mm. the conversation has to move with them. Their minds really have to be changed as well. I thought this is, you know, quite fascinating. You have talked about the appropriation of working class people in fashion before. Can you elaborate a little bit on that for me? The, the appropriation problem is obviously a huge issue in fashion. But I remember in St. Martin's Day, people doing projects and taking from, A, like black culture was a huge problem. People taking from black culture and like assuming it was their own or assuming that that image was not rooted in history. People just didn't evaluate the, the imagery or look into the history. But then even with working class culture, it became like a trend almost where people were talking about the hoodie or, mm. you know, people would design things and talk about them especially with women like when they looked at like the way women dressed in working class thing it was funny it was funny when people spoke about like people from women from working class communities or estates was always something that was brought up wearing tight clothes and being sexy and how like crass and bad taste that was mm. and I'm I always had such an issue and I was always very vocal about that when you live in a society where you know people put value on the way women look so much and women are so criticized for it and then to attack women for using that to their advantage is insane and then people appropriating it and kind of assuming that that's below them or that that way of mm -hmm. dressing isn't rooted in important meanings or even like when they speak about like the hoodie and people assuming that it's like this bad thing that comes from the state but all of these in like and doc martens and stuff like everything isn't just imagery and i think it's just the ignorance of just thinking that something exists in an image for you to take from and there was a lot of it with like, you know, with Irish culture, with like pony boys and things, all of those kind of books are looking at like even traveler culture and people just thinking that they could sort of take from it and that they were entitled to it. And then that's mm -hmm. kind of when I, like, I wasn't aware that I was working class at all until I went to London to St. Martin's. And then it was like, wow, you know, like, because in Britain, I think the class thing is so much more apparent than here. Yeah. I think um, so. And I like I didn't know like private schools and stuff. We don't really have private schools in Wexford. It's definitely not where I'm from. So I wasn't aware that that was a thing or that people placed importance on your sort of um, family name and stuff. Like it was bizarre yeah. to me that that was something that was important. Um, and also it blew my mind the, the kind of confidence that that instills in people when they've mm. been told that they're amazing just from birth. You know, and that really blew my mind that it could be like, someone's made you know something about some historical I don't know war or some huge like global event that affects people and then they'll make like a white shirt mm. but they have the they have the privilege of education to be able to talk about it and articulate why that is relevant and I'm, I was just there in shock like it's literally a white shirt um, so all of those things were a real learning point for me and also like that's kind of there's a lot of I guess fetishization in those sort of upper class schools you know where it's like it, it, people kind of got singled out for what their niche was you know and then you were kind of told that it was so amazing that you were there because of where you're from which is bizarre anyway. And how has COVID-19 affected you? 
I, I love that everyone's been at home and like reflecting in a way. I think that it's so nice when things slow down. But for me, like for me as well, before COVID, I was doing so many different projects that were sort of on the go and planning more that I do think I kind of needed to like literally just stop in my tracks and think for a while. So I think people have had a lot more time to self-educate and think about purchases because the, the way that people buy sometimes is based on maybe their kind of manic life, you know, where you, mm. you, your weekend is your time off from work. So you make an effort and you want to buy clothes to go out or you want to, I know, purchase something to like treat yourself because you're traumatized by your week in work kind of thing. Yeah. You know? So I think it's, it's an interesting shift that people are having. I think a lot of people I know who, you know, had, had kids or are at different stages in their life or bought flats in London and stuff are really reevaluating the choices that they're making because they're grazing children in this world you know and they want to mm. them to understand that that pace isn't something to be desirable you know like I think people are having a real realization that our value as people isn't just in what we can produce or what we can make you know there's so many other things to be valued about what we do and who we are and so much more kind of collaboration and conversations that can be had when things are done slower I guess looking to the future what is the future of fashion do you think I think the future of fashion is a lot of the structures that are in place are slowly, very slowly, unfortunately, being dismantled. And I hope that people are realizing that the smoke and mirrors of it is coming down a bit. But also, you know, even when I worked for those sort of big companies in a, such a small time frame, like this is really the first time in the history of fashion that it all of the houses that are couture houses or are fashion houses or ready to wear houses are owned by businessmen and conglomerates, mm -hmm. specifically like, you know, white French men. And okay. it's very interesting that it comes as no surprise really that it's been, the pace has been pushed up under this kind of capitalist idea. You know, it's just like make, make, make more, more, more. If you're at a Louis Vuitton or you're at a Gucci, put the logo on everything and sell as much product as possible. Um, and I think now this kind of stage of reflection is hopefully people are starting to see that, you know, there, there really isn't the space in the world for all of those products. And there isn't, you know, and it's almost people are able to separate what is kind of uh, fashion or, you know, cutting or something that's really interesting from branding and those kind of capitalist houses. And it's a slow, it's a slow pace. And I think that we're also in this sort of social media image based generation, which is quite tricky to navigate because people I think our brains maybe are more set up for instant gratification mm -hmm. and, and things being black and white but in the guise of sustainability there isn't really a black and white you know it, it's there's so many gray areas around what you could be doing or how you could be doing it you know and I'm like I'm someone who like has always just bought secondhand things because I kind of find weirder uglier things there that I like <laughs> um, but also like in the promotion of you know the ebays and the debuff is that still promoting capitalism which is something that i've just started thinking about is like okay. there was a, I heard the other day on fashion revolution of i'm just thinking like if you're promoting a certain look on that you bought on something or you're talking about like secondhand clothes it does that thing still create the desire to just buy new clothes and I we're, I think that we're you know that we're all in yeah. the same we're all kind of re-navigating those spaces of like oh shit maybe that has this effect but it's better than saying like let's buy something from debuff or like the conversation of people having you know a sponsorship and then being sort of like for a brand like say you have a boohoo sponsorship and then having a, 
conversation about women's rights. And then mm. there's this other issue that's like, well, women's rights, but only for the women who get to buy the clothes, not the women who get to make the clothes. And mm -hmm. it's like, I think we have to accept that everyone's going to make loads of mistakes in this, like absolutely everyone. Um, and that's when learning happens. That's when, like when you're sharing the experience and going like, the actions are so much more important, I think, than the talk of actions. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's encouraging for me seeing people outwardly trying to take the actions. I think that's really important.